Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za television shows that deal with with that particular group uh, we normally refer to them as the Mounties they were established in 1870 to enforce federal laws in Canada and initially they were put together uh, to try to bring about the peace in the area of the Northwest Territories of Canada uh, where there was a lot of gang violence as time went on the group went through a number of name changes from the Northwest Mounted Rifles to the Northwest Mounted Police and finally to the name they use today the Royal Canadian Mounted Police um, one of the the things about the Mounties is they have quite the reputation for for bringing in criminals and and bringing in justice and so the phrase has been the idiom has been coined that says the Mounties always get their man and that's the picture that I want us to kind of think of this morning the Mounties doesn't matter what type of a criminal you are how sophisticated you are how clever you are the Mounties always get their man and as we look at this section here in the book of Jonah, we want to find out that just like the mounted police of Canada, God always gets his man. And we're going to consider the book of Jonah from the start to the finish, and we're going to look at how Jonah basically was not only rebellious, it's obvious that he was rebellious in chapter 1, but one of the things I want us to think about here as we go through this section is that Jonah was still rebellious at the end of the book. And we, we really see God pursuing Jonah from beginning to end of this book. Um, we, we often focus on the story of the miracle of the fish swallowing and vomiting out Jonah or the amazing repentance of Nineveh. But I think this book's about the, the pursuit of God for his erring prophet and consequently the pursuit of God for his erring children today. As we look at this, sec this chapter, uh, this book, one of the things that, that, that kind of strikes us is the fact that when the book ends, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a strange ending. It just kind of ends almost in a, in a, in a, in a way that, that leaves you thinking there should be a chapter 5 someplace. Um, I, I don't think there was. We don't have a lost book of Jonah, don't get me wrong here. But as we look at this particular book, we kind of think that if there were a chapter 5, it would deal with Jonah's further repentance. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit as we kind of go through this. But perhaps this book ends the way it does because God's pursuit of his rebellious people doesn't end until they get to heaven. And so as we look and think about this particular book and, and consider it together, I hope we'll see that God with us, like he did with Jonah, is continuing to pursue us until he fully conforms us to the image of Christ. So as we look at this, we want to look at jo Jonah's stubborn refusal, God's persistent pursuit. I know that's not a word. 
and God's surprising renewal. And before we do any of that, let's have a word of prayer and ask God's blessing upon his word. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you, Father, for the blessing of being here with these brethren. And Father, just uh, pray for this church to continue to flourish, continue to grow. We pray, Father, that you'd help us as we look into your word. And Father, give me the, the wisdom and grace, Father, to just speak your word accurately. We pray that, Father, you would be working, that we might grow more like Christ through the time we spend today. And if there's anyone here that's not yet a believer in Christ, I pray for them. I pray that they would hear the, the truth that Christ has died for their sins and that they are standing under the wrath of God in need of a Savior. Father, we thank you for this time. Just pray that you'd guide us and lead us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing we want to look at is Jonah's stubborn refusal. And look with me in Jonah chapter 1. And let's read the first three verses. We'll kind of, I'm, 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 to some extent, assuming you know the book of Jonah, we'll kind of look through it as we go. But Jonah the prophet, notice in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, if you've got a Bible map or if you've got a, a little bit of a picture of the Middle East in your head, now I'm going to try to do this so that I do this in your, in your direction and not mine. But Jonah in, is in the, in, the, in the Jerusalem area or in the, Israel, in the nation of Israel, here in the kind of the center of the Middle East. And God says, I want you to go up to Tarshish, which is probably here to Venda away from, from us. It's about that type of a distance. God says, go, sorry, go up to Nineveh and preach against it. And Jonah said, okay, Lord, I'm going to go to Tarshish in Spain. Most historians think that, that Tarshish was in the southern part of Spain, which means that basically from the, the thinking of a Middle Eastern at that particular day, he went as far west as he possibly could go. They didn't know anything about the New World. They knew nothing about what we would call the U.S. and Canada today or South America. He, he went as far away as he possibly could go, and he had to stop. That's what Jonah was trying to accomplish. Jonah was told to go north and east, and instead he went west to Tarshish. And as he went west, the, the thing that I suppose is the most disturbing part of this is the last part of verse 3 where he says, he went there away from the presence of the Lord. Now I want you to think about that concept. He arose to flee from the presence of the Lord, and that should arrest us. That should just kind of grab us as we think about this. Because what was, what was Jonah's theology? What did, what did he believe about God? Well, we know that Jonah had the book of Psalms in his, in his repertoire. He had the book of Psalms because he quotes the book of Psalms in, in chapter 2. Well, how about this psalm? Psalm 139 verses 7 to 10. What David says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. 
If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. How could Jonah, the, the, the theologian that he was, the prophet that he was, the individual that would have been seriously understanding the theology that God is omnipresent, how could this man who was preaching God's word possibly think he could escape the presence of God? Jonah in his rebellion and, dis and disobedience thought that he could get away from God. Foolishness, right? I mean, we look at that and we kind of throw our hands up in the air and just kind of wonder, how could, how could anybody think such a way? Now, I'm sure that in, is, in, in Jonah's thinking, he wasn't thinking that God is not omnipresent. He, when, it, when it talks about getting away from the presence of God, he's probably thinking, I need to get out of Jerusalem. That's where, that's where the temple is. That's where, that's where God's presence is manifested. And that's probably what he's thinking. But in reality, he's thinking basically atheistically. Because what he's doing is he's saying, I can somehow get to the point where God can't find me, where God can't get me. I'll get so far away that God will give up his pursuit of me. Does that sound crazy to you? It sounds crazy to me. And yet then I start to examine my own heart and I start to think, you know what, I do the same things in different ways. I don't run to Cape Town and try to get as far away from the presence of God as I can. But I do things like this. Um, have you ever said, I think I'll sin because no one's watching? Now, we wouldn't put it that way. But we kind of, you know, you see those, those movies where the guy looks this way, looks this way, and then does what he's doing. And we do that in life, right? We kind of do the same type of thing. My mom and my dad are not there. My, my boss isn't looking. I, you know, my spouse isn't looking. I can get away with this. And aren't we basically saying God's not omnipresent when we say that? Aren't we basically saying that, you know, no one is looking? Well, then evidently God's not looking. Or maybe you've even gone so far, and I know I've done this in, in my life, you go so far as to think, God won't correct me. Maybe he can't correct me. I, you know, yeah, sure he could, but he probably won't. I can get away with this. We're thinking just like Jonah was thinking. We're rebelling just like Jonah was rebelling. So the first thing we, that is, we find disturbing as we look at this story of Jonah is Jonah's theology that is very, very much in contradiction to his actions. Instead of doing as he believed, he's acting hypocritically, just as we tend to do. And as disturbing as that is, turn over to chapter 4. And I want you to notice Jonah's reason for rebelling. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1 says this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. What displeased him? The repentance of Nineveh in chapter 3. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why, that is why, there's the reason, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, 
please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. James Montgomery Boyce, in commenting on this section, said there were a number of possible reasons why Jonah might have rebelled against God, might have tried to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He said it's possible that because of the mission being so filled with difficulty, maybe that, it was just too much, it was just overwhelming. Maybe, maybe he, should, he just wanted to get away from the presence of God because the, 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 the challenge God had given him was too hard. And he went on to say, certainly it was difficult. Nineveh was a city of 120,000 infants or small children. We see that in chapter 4, verse 11. We know from archaeological discoveries that the city wall was wide enough for three chariots to ride side by side. The idea of going there and preaching to a people who considered the God of the Bible irrelevant would seem ludicrous. To be despised and mocked seemed inevitable and the least of his potential difficulties. Maybe it was too difficult, but that's not what the Bible says was Jonah's problem. He goes on to say, perhaps it was because it was so dangerous, and it certainly was dangerous. Let me read you a, a passage from Nahum chapter 3. This is describing Nineveh. He says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunders. No end of the prey, the crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with their charms. Imagine going to a place like that to preach Christ. That's what Jonah was asked to do. Put this in a contemporary term. Imagine that you are a Ukrainian and God asks you to go to Moscow to preach. That's the picture that Jonah was facing. It was dangerous. But that's not what the Bible says was Jonah's reason. No, the Bible says that the reason that Jonah didn't want to go to Tarshish is because Jonah knew that God was merciful and he did not want him to be merciful. Can you imagine? I mean, you talk about racism. <laughs> Can you imagine that concept? He knew that God might change his mind and not judge these people because he knew that if these people repented, God would relent of the disaster that he had planned for him. Nineveh was Israel's enemy and Jonah, quite simply, wanted these people to go to hell. And he was mad that God didn't concur. Jonah's Rebellion against God is shocking. But let us remember that we do the same thing. We rebel against God's will in our lives and find all sorts of excuses why we should be justified. I was angry, but. I lusted, but. And we justify our actions just like Jonah did. We may not flee to Tarshish. But we often are justifying our rebellious actions against God and calling them something else, blame-shifting them, putting them upon someone else, 
or excusing them in one way or the other. In all those situations, we, like Jonah, are refusing God's word. We are rebelliously refusing his, his will, and we need to repent. So we've looked at Jonah's refusal. Let's look secondly at God's pursual. And that's found back in chapter 1. And notice in verse 4, Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord. And I would think that at this particular point that Jonah thought he got away with it. And then verse 4 says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. I want you to notice what God did to get Jonah's attention. He quite literally moved heaven and earth to pursue his rebellious prophet. When Jonah fled from the presence of the Lord, God didn't say, oh, okay, fine, I give up. I'll let him go. I'll just let him go on his own way. This was the practice of the leaving of the 90 and 9 to go and find the hundredth sheep. Exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing God put that, that, that thought into practice. That didn't move Jonah at all, did it? What was Jonah's response when God hurled a great storm upon the, the sea? He went to sleep. That's found in verse 5. Notice, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. They did everything they could possibly do. But Jonah went down into the inner part of the ship and laid, lay down when he was fast asleep. The only one, now think about this, the only one in that ship who had access to the God of heaven was sleeping. Does that, again, it, 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 it shocks us as we think about this. The only one who could possibly have reached out to a God who could do anything about the situation went to sleep. Why? Because he didn't care. I want you to catch something here as we read through this first chapter. Jonah would rather die than repent. That's how stubborn the human heart is. He didn't care. He didn't care that all these men were going to die with him. He didn't care that he was going to die. In fact, I think he wanted to die, and we'll see that later in the chapter. In fact, look down at verse 11. When they found out that Jonah was the cause of this problem, it says, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it was because of me that, you, that this great tempest was come upon you. I want you to catch this. This isn't a magic formula. This isn't a formula of, okay, if you throw me into the sea, I'll be some sort of a sacrifice and God will be appeased. No, Jonah wants to die. He's asking them to assist him in suicide. He is staying, he is just as rebellious at this moment as he was when he fled from Jerusalem to Tarshish. With all their efforts to, to, to save the ship, the sailors finally complied with Jonah's requ request and cast him overboard. And in verse 17, look down there with me. The Lord wasn't done. <laughs> Jonah thought he had accomplished his purpose. 
Can you imagine being thrown into a, a, into a sea that is raging? If you've ever seen the movie The Perfect Storm, you get a picture of what this storm must have been like. He, it's raging against him and he's thrown into the... And, and you, even in chapter 2, he describes going, falling into the depths. He had to think it was over. And God prepared a fish. Verse 12, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, I think we need to understand something here at this point. As we've already said, Jonah's rebellion hasn't changed one bit. His being requested in, to be thrown into the sea was not God's direction. He did that on his own. Throw me into the sea. In fact, if we look at chapter, seven, one, chapter 1, verse 17, and connect that with chapter 2, verse 1, and again, the chapter divisions are artificial in our Bibles, but notice in chapter 2, verse 1, then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. When? When did he pray? We know he prayed from the belly of the fish, but when? What? He was there three days. When did he pray? Well, according to what I read there, he prayed on the third day. Do you, do you, can you see the stubbornness here? He went to Tarshish. God sent a, a storm. He rebelled against that. He refused to repent at that point. He went to sleep. When it became impossible to do anything else, he told the sailors, throw him overboard. He gets thrown overboard. He's drowning. He still won't repent. He gets swallowed by a fish, and he spends three days in the stinking belly of a fish and still won't repent until the third day. After Jonah repented in chapter 2, it seems that life came back to normal, that the, the, the servant is restored, right? But when we go back to Nineveh in chapter 3, he immediately, I'm sorry, when he was sent back to Nineveh in chapter 3, he immediately went and he preached against the city as he was told to do. But when we come to the end of the chapter 3, we find the city in repentance and we expect Jonah. How many of you, when, you, when the first time you read Jonah, <laughs> I know you've got to go back and think about this, but the first time you read Jonah, how many of you got to chapter 4 and thought, he's going to praise God? <laughs> the whole city repents. I mean, the greatest missionary endeavor in history. Okay? Imagine uh, Johannesburg repents at the preaching of one man. That's what you're talking about. 120,000 infants or young children in this city. How big was the city? You get the picture? It was huge. They all repented from the, from the king down. And you expect to come to chapter 4 and have it say, and, 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 and Jonah was rejoicing with, with, the, with the glorious work of the gospel of Christ. Or you expect to get to chapter 4 and have him saying, you know what, these guys don't know a lot about the God of the Bible, so let me, let me disciple them, let me take them and train them. But that's not how chapter 4 opens. It opens with Jonah mad at God for not judging them. He's angry and hoping that God will actually change his mind. He goes and sits on the hill so that he can watch and see. Maybe God will still change his mind and judge these people. Amazing. Amazing. 
So chapter 4, let's go back over there and let's look at, at something here as we watch how God deals with him. I said that Jonah repented in chapter 2 and he did. But when we get to chapter 4, we find out that that repentance wasn't very complete, was it? He repented of fleeing from the presence of the Lord, but his heart's still not changed. So God uses a series of questions in Jonah chapter 4 to search Jonah's heart. God's really good at this. And by the way, this is a really good way to work with people, isn't it? Whether you're a disciple or in counseling, is ask questions. Ask, asking good questions will cause people to search their hearts. Remember when Adam and Eve had sinned? The Lord did this. Genesis chapter 3, the Lord called to the man and said, Where are you? Where are you? It's a question of conviction. Where are you, Adam? When he admitted that he was hiding, he says, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And to the woman he said, What is this you have done? Do you see the way that God asks questions in order to bring conviction? And he's doing the same thing with Jonah. Look in chapter 4 and look in, and notice in verse 4. After Jonah threw his temper tantrum, the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah, are you right in being angry here? Are you justified in being angry? Do you, do, do, do you, can you call this righteous indignation, Jonah? Questions force a person to search their hearts. And Jonah, and God was doing this with Jonah. And Jonah's response showed that he was still in a state of rebellion. His answer isn't any different from Adam's when God asked him if he had eaten of the fruit. Adam shifted blame. Jonah excused himself. And so God gave Jonah an object lesson. Look in verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat at the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that he might be shade over his head to save him from this, his discomfort. Now I want you to notice this next verse or this next line. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Do you realize that's the only place in the book of Jonah where it ever says that Jonah was happy? When he got delivered from the fish, it doesn't say he was happy. But when he had this plant over top of his head in the hot Mediterranean sun, he was happy. He was glad. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm and attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and it beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that, it might die, that he might die and said, it is better for me to live than to die. Now let me pause there for a second. God is giving Jonah this object lesson. He supplies him shade. He brought him comfort. He brought then a worm and a strong east wind that beat down upon his head, which, which gave him discomfort. And it's at this point that God's going to point out Jonah's pettiness. And notice in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, now watch this. I want you to catch the question. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? 
hungry because my precious plant has died. Jonah, Jonah was happy about the plant. God took the plant away and now Jonah is sad. Jonah is angry. Jonah was not happy at the repentance of Nineveh, but he's happy about a plant that brought him personal comfort. He's not worried about the sailors. He's not worried about Nineveh. He's not worried about anything or anybody else except Jonah. Ever been there? God's question exposes Jonah's pettiness. And, a God, and basically what God's question does is to bring Jonah to the point of asking the question, look at where the anger has brought you. You're angry at the loss of a plant. And that led to his third question in verse 11. He gives again, he gives a description. He said, verse 10, the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, you did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And, I, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And the book of Jonah ends on a question, an unanswered question. God is pursuing his prophet. He was pursuing his prophet in chapter 1 when he sent the wind upon the, storm, the sea to, to create the storm. He's still pursuing the prophet because the prophet's still rebellious. You know what a bloodhound is, right? It's a dog with an extremely good nose. You can train a bloodhound to track animals or people. You give them the scent of those who you are looking for and once he's got, a, he's got a lock on that scent, he'll pursue that object tirelessly until he finds it. There's a book I have in my library called Come Back Barbara, and it's a story about a, a, a young girl that grew up in a Christian home. Her father was a pastor. She grew up in the home, and she was the model student. Uh, the, the, the gentleman that was praying this morning was praying for the young people. I really appreciated that prayer. Pray for the young people. Pray for the young people of your church. But this girl was the model girl. She was the pastor's daughter. And for the first 18 years of her life, she, was, she, was, she did everything she was supposed to do. She hit her 18th birthday and turned on a dime and went the other direction. She rebelled. She, she, um, she married an unsaved guy. She ended up with a drug lord. She divorced those two guys. She, and she just was a mess. And the book, Come Back Barbara, is about the way God worked and one of the things she described God was as the hound of heaven. He's the hound of heaven. He locked in on Barbara's scent and wouldn't let go. And God locks in on his rebellious people's scent and he gets his man. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He'll surely do it. And we rest in that verse. And that's a good verse to rest in. That's a wonderful promise that, that, that God is going to preserve us, body, soul, and spirit, and take us into glory 
in our glorified bodies. But I want you to notice the first part of the verse. The God of peace sanctify you completely. And our problem is this. We're not sanctified completely. And the problem is this. I don't really want God to change me. And I rebel like Jonah did against it. But God's going to get his job done. He is going to pursue us whether it takes a fish to swallow us and spit us out, whether it takes the rebuke of a plant, the pettiness of the plant, or whatever it is, the trials that God's going to do. If you want to cooperate with God, he will mold you into the image of Christ. If you want to rebel against God, he will mold you into the image of Christ. It'll just hurt more. And that brings us to the third point, and that's God's surprising renewal. In this book, we see four rather amazing things. Go back to chapter 1, verse 16. We'll look at this first three of these fairly quickly. When Jonah was, they picked up verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. The fourth time the word hurled is used in chapter 1. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, I can't absolutely prove this because Old Testament teaching of individual salvation is a little bit difficult to always discern. But I think these soldiers or these, these sailors got saved here. Now, I want you to think about that. How was it that God, assuming they were part of God's elect, how did God reach them? He reached them through the disobedience of his servant. Jonah should never have been on that ship. It was Jonah's rebellion that God used to bring about the salvation of those sailors. Does that amaze you? <laughs> um, I, was, I was with Pastor Tsepo yesterday, Pastor Tsepo Laka, and we were talking about COVID. And I don't know how your church has been here. I know Katoris has grown through COVID. We had an inter interesting little in situation with our, our particular um, condition. We were meeting in a school when COVID hit two years ago. And the schools shut down and they shut out all churches from their, from their, from their schools. We literally had no place to open. So even six or seven weeks later when, when lockdown ended and we were allowed to meet again in person, we couldn't. And we really didn't meet until December of that year when we finally had gotten our property and we put our tent up and we were able to start meeting. And somehow the church grew. I still haven't figured that out. I, I, it, it was very humbling because all of a sudden I realized, you know what, I'm not, he's not, God's not dependent on me at all. <laughs> he doesn't need me to grow his church. He can grow his church in the most trying times that any of us have ever experienced in our lives. And the church grew. And I've heard that repeatedly. I imagine that happened here. I've heard it repeatedly over and over and over again. God grew his church when we couldn't grow the church. God, not us, builds the church. And God, not us, saves souls. Secondly, we see the greatest revival in history, the salvation of Nineveh. In chapters 3, verses 5 and 10, look over there. He says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Verse 10, And God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not 
do it. We see the greatest revival in human history taking place through the result of the obedience, though incomplete repentance, of Jonah. Number three, we see the salvation, I'm going to put that word in quotes, the salvation of Jonah. Now Jonah probably was a saved individual when he ran away from the Lord, but I want us to consider something here, and that's the repentance of Jonah in chapter 2. In Jonah chapter 2, his repentance was sincere, though probably incomplete. His repentance of running away from the Lord was dealt with well, and we see here a good example of biblical repentance. Let me run through this real quickly um, for time's sake, but notice in chapter 2, verse 3, the first thing I want you to notice about Jonah's repentance, if you want to see what repentance ought to look like, look at Jonah, because Jonah's repentance is a good example of, of biblical repentance. Number one, he recognized the sovereignty of God without blaming God. Verse 3, for you cast me into the deep. The sailors cast you into the deep. No, you cast me into the deep, Lord, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and your waves and your billows passed over me. There's a recognition that God is absolutely sovereign and that God is the proper and just judge here. That's the first thing that we see about his action. Secondly, he turned around. Look in verse 4. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. Where was he trying to flee from? The presence of the Lord. Now he's seeking the presence of the Lord. Good sign. Thirdly, he renounced idolatry. Look in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, it's possible that Jonah is talking about um, the idolatry of the heathen, but I don't think so. I think he's talking about himself. Anything that we place into the place of God is an idol. It can be my pleasure, it can be my program, it can be my time, my money, my things, or my relationships. If I put them into the place of God, it's idolatry. One writer said, whatever we do to whatever, anything for which we will sin to get it, or anything for which we will sin because we do not get it, is an idol. And that's what Jonah did. He had his program. He had his plan. And God crossed it, and Jonah put his plan above God's plan. And I think that's what Jonah's renouncing here. He's renouncing his own idolatry. That's a good part of repentance. Notice in verse 9, he says, I'll pay my dues. But with the voice of thanksgiving will I sacrifice to you what I have paid, what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. One of the great signs of true repentance here is that Jonah changed even though the circumstances had not changed. He was still in the belly of the fish when he said that. And finally, we see that, that Jonah's con concept here is that salvation is of the Lord. The final evidence of Jonah's repentance was that he attributed salvation to the Lord. He is no longer trying to redeem himself. He's no longer trying to fix the problem himself. He's no longer escaping from the Lord. He's no longer trying to die. He's saying, Lord, salvation is yours. But his heart was not 
fully right before God, even though his repentance, I believe his repentance was thorough, it just was incomplete. And that brings us to the fourth thing that we see that's rather amazing in this, cha in this book, and that's in chapter 3, verse 1. And we'll focus on this and we'll quit. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And Nineveh was an exceedingly great city that was three days' journey in breadth. It's very interesting to compare the original commission in chapter 1 to this commission in chapter 3. And just, I, I suggest you do that sometime, but let me just summarize it real quickly. In both instances, it says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh. Chapter 1 adds for their great, their, their sin. And chapter 3 says to and speak the message that I tell you. Chapter 3 says Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Chapter 1 says Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Chapter 3, Jonah cried out, yet 40 days. Chapter 1, he went and slept in the hall of the boat. In both chapters, he gave testimony about the God of Israel, and in both cases, the people believed his testimony, and in both cases, they repented. Also, it's interesting that in chapter 1, he was three days in the belly of the fish, and in chapter 3, Nineveh is said to be three days broad. In chapter 1, the sailors feared the Lord exceedingly. In chapter 3, the Ninevites called out to God mightily. What's interesting here is this. When Jonah repented in the belly of the great fish, of, yeah, God put him back exactly where he took him from. Any of you ever failed God? Ever, any of you ever failed God big time? We all have. We, we should see about 800 hands right now. And I realize there's consequences for sin. And I realize sometimes we can't put somebody back into a ministry. I get that. But what I want you to think about is that God put Jonah right back into the ministry from which he had failed. That's our God. God loves to redeem situations as well as people. He loves to take those screw-ups that we make and use them to his glory. Boyce said what's most remarkable, sorry, what is most remarkable about this remarkable chapter is that God used a man to bring about revival who had apparently disqualified himself from the ministry. Would you have treated Jonah that way? But God does. He did and he does. You cannot out the grace of God. And again, I don't mean to suggest that there aren't consequences to our sin. Of course there are. And even though Jonah had screwed up so badly, God put him back into the commission. But think about it a step further. God knew that his repentance wasn't complete and God put him back into the ministry. Why? Because God is God. And I realize he sees the heart in ways that we cannot. 
But God is a God of absolute grace, and in spite of the fact that our sanctification is far from complete, God continues to use us. So let me conclude by asking you this. Who are you in the book of Jonah? Are you the sailors worshiping false gods, following your own ways of approaching God? If you are, you're called to forsake those gods. Turn in repentance to God from your idols. God has said there is one way of salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. Are you a Ninevite, angrily fighting against the God of Israel? If so, God calls you to repent and seek him in Christ, and God will extend mercy to you. Are you Jonah, rebellious, prideful believer, arrogant, bigoted? You need to repent of your running from God and of your bigotry towards God, towards others. And there's one more person in this book that's not in the book of Jonah, but I want to bring him out. Remember, the par there's a parallel story to this. If you, if you want to compare a, no, a New Testament parable to the story of Jonah, it's the prodigal son. You can see all sorts of, of parallelism between those two stories. And we focus on the father who is God. We focus on the prodigal who is us. But sometimes we forget about the big brother, the older brother. The older brother is the Pharisees, right? And I want to think about something with you here as we close. The older brother, John MacArthur wrote a, did a, a message on the older brother, and he said, the older brother, do you know what he did later in his, in his life? He crucified Christ. He crucified the Father. Because that's what the Pharisees did. Sometimes we're like the older brother. The younger brother screws up. He really messes up. And we tend to look at that situation and say, I never did that. I never messed up like that. And we condemn others instead of welcoming the repentant back into the fold. Are you the older brother this morning? Condemning those who have repented, looking for an impossible proof of their repentance. We're going to celebrate communion now. And it's a great time for us to allow the Holy Spirit to examine our own hearts. If there's something in which, for which we need to repent before the Lord, this is the time to do it. But then rest in the finished work of Christ. Where sin abounded, grace superabounded. Rest in it is finished. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for the privilege, again, to address your people here. And I just pray that, Father, you would work in our hearts. Lord, we, we fail you. We've, I failed you at least twice this morning. But, Father, you are so gracious. You are so merciful. You are so kind and, and good to us. Lord, let us not only receive your grace, but extend it. Let us extend it to others. Let us receive it for ourselves. And Father, just help us to learn these lessons that, that you are indeed pursuing us and will not give up until the day that you conform us to the image of Christ. 
Father, you are the one who works in us both the will and the work of your good pleasure. And so, Lord, help us, help us, Lord, to bow our knees before you and to rest in, in your will be done. Thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.